Mythology, a new podcast celebrating the culture and history of the island of Ibiza. I'm Bill Beecham, an Ibiza-based journalist, and in each podcast I will interview Ibithans who are contributing in some way to the life and culture of this diverse island. The historian and writer Emily Kaufman has brought Ibiza's history to life for English speakers through many magazine articles and her much-loved book, A History Buff's Guide to Ibiza. Emily was born in New York City and grew up in Pennsylvania. She came to Spain on a gap year after university, and that year became the rest of her life. Emily moved to Ibiza in 1984, where the great walls of Dolt Villa first piqued her interest in history. In this interview, I wanted to explore the Spanish Civil War, as it still seems so raw and relevant today, nearly 80 years later. Emily brings to life this tumultuous period in European history, describing how the forces of communism, fascism and democratic reform collided and led to war in Spain. It touched Ibiza with some horrifying results, including the massacre of more than 90 men, the cream of Ibiza high society. So Emily, thanks very much for inviting me down to your house oh. with this uh, beautiful view across the, the hills to... Calatarida, I think it is. Um, and Emily is, is a very well-known historian, journalist, uh, very eloquent public speaker. I first came across you uh, with the Ibiza Insights yes. a, couple, a couple of years ago, where you spoke um, very eloquently about different periods in Ibethan history. And I know that you've also written a book, The, Brief, the History Buff's Guide to Ibiza, which is a great... Um, for anyone like me who's fairly new to the island and wants to wants to get that background, yes, which, which was which is great. You're also an English teacher. Yes, I am. Yeah, and um, well, let, let's get started. I wanted to find out really a bit about you first. We're going to talk about the Spanish Civil War mm-hmm. later. Okay. And um, but I'm, I'd like to know what brought you to Ibiza. But let, let's go right back to the start. Can you tell me a bit about your family history? Where you were born, a bit about your parents as well? Okay. Well, I was born in New York City in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. My mother was from the South and wanted to live in a a cosmopolitan big city. My dad was uh, the first generation son of Jewish immigrants from, uh, well, Odessa and Eastern and Poland, what is now mostly the Ukraine. And they met. In New York, they had me, but at the age of six, my father was transferred to Pennsylvania, which is a very rural area, and that's basically where I grew up, in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is, is north of, of New York, so it's quite... It's, a... actu- it's actually just south of New York. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. It must have been quite a, quite a contrast to it, city life. It was, it was, but being only six years of age, I adapted well. Sure. <laughs> Um, tell me about your um, your upbringing then. Well, basically, I just had a very um, quiet, ordinary upbringing. Nothing out of the ordinary. But when things started to change is when I went to college, what we call college in the United States, which I guess is university, we have the opportunity in the States to study abroad during the third year of college. And since I had always studied Spanish, I thought, well, why not go to Spain? And learn Spanish and do a year there. And um, I did. I was accepted on a program. I went to Madrid. And that's when I really, my eyes opened, you know, to, to another world and different cultures. And, and I became very enamored of Spanish society, Spanish people, uh, Spanish food, you name it. I just felt very at home and welcomed. What, what's the Spanish connection then? What, what made you study Spanish? Well, no connection really, none, uh, through what my heritage would be. 
It's just that in the States, we had the option to study two languages, Spanish or French. And so I chose, I actually chose French because, uh, you know, uh, nice young ladies were supposed to study French. But the first day of class, I didn't really like the teacher. I thought she was really mean and strict. And I knew that the Spanish teacher was very lovely and warm. So I just immediately changed over to Spanish only on the basis of the, the character of the teachers that I had. <laughs> and then once I got with, with Spanish, I just stuck with it. That's changed the course of, of your life, that, uh, that, that teacher, the good and the bad teacher. It really did, yeah. it really did. Yeah. So, that, so then how long did you stay in Spain at that point? Well, just one year. I stayed in for the school year and, you know, I came in uh, late August, studied the whole school year. But by the end of the, the year, I had already gotten my first job as an English teacher because this was in 1980. It was the 80-81 school year. And in Madrid, people were realizing that they needed to start learning English. And so um, the little language schools were just taking on people whether they had qualifications or not. And I was lucky enough to be taken on at a language school. So I stayed all summer. So it was a full year that I stayed in, in Spain, and I loved it. I had to go back to the States to finish my degree, which I did. And then I thought to myself, well, before I start real life as a grown-up person, I'm going to take a gap year, which was also the done thing. I thought I'm going to go back to Spain, to Madrid specifically, which I had fallen in love with as a cosmopolitan European capital. And I thought I'll just go back to my job as an English teacher for one year and then, you know, resume my life in the United States. But that one year turned into my life and I never went back to the States. <laughs> so I met my husband, I began to have children. And it was really, I came to Ibiza fortuitously because he got a job here. And so we moved as a family to Ibiza. What year was that? In 84, 1984. Okay. And so... Um what degree did you get? I got a degree in humanities, mm -hmm. which they say is comparable to a degree in breathing. <laughs> <laughs> you can do anything with a degree in humanities, I'm sure. That's right. <laughs> uh, okay, so then um, how, did, how did things progress once you arrived in Ibiza in terms of your life and your interest in history? Okay, well, the very... Um, Within, I think, 24 hours of arriving in Ibiza, I'd fallen in love with the history. But I'm going to come back to that moment, that special moment. Because after that, that moment, I devoted myself. I then had another child as soon as I came to Ibiza. And I devoted myself for many years just to raising my two small children. I have two sons, David and Ishmael. But the reason I had a sort of epiphany as soon as I came to Ibiza is because my mother... Um, came with me to help me make the move from Madrid to Ibiza. You know, she helped me with the luggage and the packing and, and, and the baby that we had at that time. And it was very, very comforting to have her. Now, she is a real history buff. And I, at the age of 23, was not a history buff. I, was, I liked pop music and dancing and all the things that young people like. But she said, Emily, we're going to see Ibiza town. And so she dragged me along. I didn't really want to go, um, but she dragged me along, and I saw it. And when I saw it, I was flabbergasted. I was floored. I was delighted. I was intrigued. I was mystified. Everything. I was just so impressed. I thought, that's amazing. That is, because in America, we didn't have these huge historical monuments. And, of course, Dalt Villa now is a World Heritage Site. Um, a lot so your, your mother must have somehow awakened your yes. fascination with history. I, I owe my entire interest in history to my mother, which I fought relentlessly, you know, until I became a mature adult and finally gave into it. And, and then we shared that love of history and art, archaeology, things like that for, for the rest of our lives. So then uh, from that initial awakening, how did your historical studies or interests progress from there? Okay, so the, where we, uh, that laid dormant there, that, that fascination with Dalt Vila, and I wanted to know 
Who built those walls? Why did they build those walls? You know, what I wanted to know all of those things, and those questions burned very fiercely within me, but very deeply within me, and were sort of put on the back burner. And fast forward a few years, my kids got older, they went to school, and I thought, well, maybe I can get a little job uh, in the summer. And I was lucky enough to meet Sally Wilson, the legendary Sally Wilson, who is um, an American woman from California who came to Ibiza in 1968 and started up her own newspaper back then with Pam Deacon, uh, Ibiza Insight, and then later in 84 started up the Ibiza Now, right. which is now Ibiza Hoita. And she needed some general reporting to be done. And she took me on to work in the office and uh, to, to submit articles. So I did that. And then she said, well, would you like to write a feature article? And I said, yes, I would. And so at first, I was just writing feet. There are a lot of artists in Ibiza, like David Monette. He was another American and um, a lot of exhibitions. So I, I was sort of, I found that niche. But it wasn't complete. And, and while I found it interesting, one day I said to her, you know, I'm going to go to the archaeology museum and I'm going to try and interview the, the director there and see what happens. And so I did, and I didn't interview the director. Now he's the director, Benjamin Costa, but then he was the curator. And he very warmly welcomed me in, and, and he gave me an interview. And a lot of people responded uh, very positively to that interview. So I thought, well, you know, we could, there's so much history here, we could, like, do a little series. And that's what we did. And that history series ended up to be... About 17 years long. <laughs> we, started, we started up with the history part of it in 95. And then in 2012, when I went back to, to the States to look after my parents, that's when it finished. So that's about 17 years. And that formed the basis of your book, right? And that formed the basis of my book. Apart from the history um, and the English teaching, is there anything else that you've done in Ibiza that you'd like to talk about? Well, no, I've just lived a wonderful life in Ibiza. Yes. I mean, it, it has um, provided me with all the opportunities I need for personal growth, for friendship, for healthful living. Um, yes, I, I owe all my happiness to Ibiza, really. That's, that's a lovely thing to hear. Yes. <laughs> I'm hoping the same thing happens to me over the years as well. Yeah. Shall we, shall we turn our attention to the Civil War? The reason I wanted to talk about this period is that it's still feels quite raw. Somehow mm -hmm. it feels quite alive. Oh, you know, yes. I, it feels like, um, I don't know that much about it, but it still seems like I, I'm aware that a lot of bad things happened on mm -hmm. the island and and uh, people don't really like to talk about it. It's, yeah. and, it and it's probably still in living memory for some people, yes. at least in their families. Par parents' families' <clears throat> generations. Um, so it's a sensitive topic. But also Very a fascinating much. one, and I think okay. if we if we want to learn the lessons of history, we do need to talk about history. Yes. So I wonder whether um, you you could start give us a bit of context first of all. Let's look at Spain as a whole, and then focus in on Ibiza. Can okay. you tell us the events or what what led up to the civil war taking place? All right. Well, the 1930s in general, all over Europe was a time when ideas were free-floating free around. And those ideas, the political ideologies, you might say could be spearheaded by uh, communism and fascism. Those were the two main ideas with a string of others behind them. But those were the two main ideas that, that just took off and, and began to really come to loggerheads with each other. Now, Spain, as a country, was a microcosm of this entire fight for, you know, and what was at stake was really the democratic um, political process or an author authoritarian type of state uh, in which the decisions are made from, from far up and imposed down. Uh, so, of course, we have, as forerunners of the fascist type of government, we have Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco, and then as forerunners of democratic reformism, as it was known, we have the United States, France, and, and England. But Spain, Spain had 
all of those all of those diverse tendencies completely within it in miniature form and those ideas began to um, be stirred up quite a lot there's a lot of um, proselytism uh, with people traveling specifically traveling around to espouse these ideas and and every sector of society would sort of gravitate towards what within the same sector within the aristocracy there are people who became extremely liberal and wanted to fight for civil rights and for the ability for for poor people to have education and to be integrated into society and then you had uh, also, even you might say, well, yes, the rich and the power and the industrialists and the oligarchs would always want um, a fascist type of or authoritarian type of, of regime, but not necessarily because um, they also wanted Spain to be a progressive country in, in the lines of the rest of Europe. So you would also have poor people, though, who because they believe so much in the church, and they didn't really understand about ideology. That they just knew that the left was against the church, and they would be very staunch defenders of whoever the the right wing candidate was, because they knew they were going to defend the values of the church. So, so Spain was a very complex and richly layered uh, country ideologically. And when push began to come to shove in Spain, and uh, a segment of the military and the aristocracy decided that they they didn't want the Second Republic in office anymore. They began to plan a coup d'etat. And so can I just take yes. just rewind a little bit? So, it, uh, Spain was a was a monarchy, right? Yes. And um, was democracy coming in? Was it a constitutional yes. monarchy? Okay, thank you for asking that. It was uh, basically in the early twentieth uh, century. It was what you would call a constitutional or parliamentary monarchy, but that was just a facade, really, for keeping power in the hands of the upper echelons. And there was no real political process going on. You had the liberals and the conservatives in what were known as the dynastic parties. Dynastic meaning linked to the crown. Uh, but really, it, instead of liberal and conservative, we could just say um, a conservative, an arch-conservative or something. Okay. Um, <clears throat> was there a popular vote? When did that come in? No, the popular vote. The popular vote came in much later. But what happened is that the Spain, Spanish government, just on its own um, demerits, mm -hmm. you might say, went into crisis. Okay. And so a constituent government was put into place when Primo de Rivera, the dictator, was. A very unique dictator. He is known as an enlightened dictator because he really did try to do what was right. He used the strong arm of the law, but really, really, he helped. He did a lot of things. He started Iberia Airlines. He started Telefonica, which is now Movistar. He started Kamsa, which is an oil company. Uh, he built the first railway lines in Madrid. He built many schools. Um, he irrigated much of the arable land in Spain. I mean, he really, really did put the tax money back into infrastructure. Was this in the 30s, we're talking? He came into power in 1923. Okay. And in 1930, seven years later, he could see that because of some of his other more strong-arm tactics, he was losing the support, even of his supporters. So he willingly stepped down from power. Right. His, also, his health was ailing, and he left Spain in, I believe, January 1930, and died very soon afterwards in Paris. So that left the, mon the par parliamentary monarchy to sort of <clears throat> resume back up. And the first thing they did was they held some elections, which were really intended just to, as municipal elections, just to vote in uh, town hall representatives and things like that, local representation within the parliament. And they did, it did not pose in any way, shape, or form the continuance of the parliamentary monarchy. But the results of that election, the first election in seven years, was, were over, overwhelmingly all the Republican candidates won. And so in that sense, um, the Second Republic came through a bloodless revolution. It was voted in by the people, legitimately. And because of this, it was admired all over Europe. 
And we're in the 30s now, are we? We're, we're in the 30s. This was 1931. Okay. April 1931, when that election took place. Right. And then was, um, was, it, was there stability after that? Well, um, no, it was very hard. Uh, to, first of all, in 1929 was the Great Depression. Mm. So for any government to come in, and they're already battling in the political realm because they have a large portion of the, of the population against them, but then to not be able to show the, the, the economic results because prosperity is the best propaganda there is for any political party. Um, and they couldn't show that. Things went a lot better than before, but they still couldn't. The whole world was struggle, struggling under this. So the reforms were not as fast as the very impatient population would have liked. But, that, but it was still accepted as this is going to be our form of government. Maybe we have to vote in a new prime minister. Maybe we need a new uh, minister of agriculture. But I don't think the people, and I, I, I affirm, the people did not want to leave the, the, the Republican Democratic t type of government. However, the old guard, which was the aristocracy, the landed gentry, a small industrial oligarchy, really said, no, we can't have this. They're starting to say people don't have to go to church. They're starting to say people can get divorced. They're starting to say, you know, they felt that there was going to be entire disintegration of Spanish society as they knew and loved it. But they realized that in order to dismantle this, well, there are a few coup d'etats in the early days, but they didn't, they didn't take. And they realized that to dismantle it, they had to form their own political party and engage in the process and destroy it from within, which is what they did. Because two, the first two years, from 31 to 33, is what were called the reformist, the reformist biennium. Then 33 to 35 is known as the black Biennium. Black meaning it was full of scandal, it was full of um, bad things. There's a revolution in Asturias. It's when the right wing really got their claws into government and began to backtrack on a lot of the reformist legislation, especially in terms of um, the military, the church and land reform, and Catalan home rule. Those were the four issues. The main four issues that the Spanish Republic the Second Republic were, was grappling with were those. Land reform to give peasants more rights than they had because they were s severely downtrodden. Um, the church, the Jesuits were sort of controlling everything, especially uh, education. And so they were giving a very skewed and narrowed and blinkered form of education. And they, the Second Republic endeavored to take away the the power that the church had in, in the realm of education. And there are many, many reforms within, within the religious realm which the church was not going to tolerate and those who supported the church uh, were not going to tolerate. I mean, just to give you an idea, the Jesuits had a huge stock market portfolio. I mean, they were wheelers and dealers. They were movers and shakers. I mean, they, it wasn't just, it was ide ideology, but it was backed by such big money. And it wasn't just that the people tithed them with the, these tithes that they got. They, <laughs> they had some of the most talented lawyers in the entire country, you know, investing this money for them. Uh, so they're fabulously wealthy. But anyway, that, so it was the church... Then the military also had all had an outsized amount of power in, in politics, so they were trying to trim down the military, especially since all of the colonial holdings that Spain had had became, after the Spanish-American War, were just reduced to, I think, northern Morocco. That was it. I mean, they had lost South America, Cuba, the Philippines, Guam, they had really sort of lost it all. So they didn't need this huge military that, they, that they'd had before. And then, of course, Catalonia had long been saying, we were our own culture, we have our own language, we, for thousands of years, we ruled ourselves in our own small empire. Um, we wrote the Maritime Book of Law in, in the Middle Ages, which they did. Um, we need at least home rule. Within the Spanish state, we need home rule. And that was one of the great triumphs of the Republic, is that they, they achieved that. For which reason, what we now call La Generalitat, which is the Catalan government, was reinstated. 
um, during the, the Second Republic. Still a big issue now, of course. <clears throat> and it's a big issue now. Yeah. So the Second Republic was a very liberal, very forward-thinking. Um, they meant to equalize and, and level society and make distribution of goods and, and, and resources more, more um, equitable for everybody. So can we say that there are two kind of forces at play? You've got Republicans who are reformist, yeah. who are in power at this stage, and uh, nationalists who more support the, the monarchy or support the establishment. Yes. And the, mon and the, uh, uh, the church. The church, yeah. the military, the, the way land was set up. Mm. I mean, there was, you know, there were, estates were entailed so that you couldn't sell. And I mean, there were some um, dukes, for example, that had their lands went from, from the Straits of Gibraltar, practically, up into the Cantabrian Sea. You could continuously make your way up through Spain, never leaving their lands. Amazing. And, because, and you couldn't sell off one block of it because the estate was entailed. So you either sold the whole thing or nothing. So they had to disentail the estates. Um, many, many of the landowners, when they saw that their peasants were turning towards libertarianism, communism, socialism, or just, you know, in order to get ahead and not be so poor. I mean, these people were skin and bones for generations. Um, they would punish villages that depended on, on their states and say, well, we're not going to plant the fields this year. We're just going to use the fields to raise bulls for the bullfights. Um, and that would doom uh, villages maybe three villages of 500 people each, to starvation because over the winter... And there were no railway lines so that they could get food in. There's no other source of work. It was really an act of cruelty. So there was a huge amount of inequality in Spain. Sounds huge. like huge, real, real poverty and starvation and then this immensely rich, wealthy aristocracy yes. supported by the church. Yes. So this was starting to be dismantled. Yes. Okay, so that's the, the Second Republic. And then how does this then start to disintegrate into a civil war? Okay, it disintegrates because um, some of the monarchists and the, the Catholic traditionalists who had formed these, these parties, um, these political parties, which they didn't even believe in the concept of political parties, but they said, we have to play the game. Um, so it's like the, 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 the wolf in sheep's clothing gets in. And meanwhile, they were playing the charade of participating in Parliament. Uh, secretly, they were going to Rome and they were negotiating with Mussolini. And Mussolini was very happily giving them money, arms. And they said at the moment of the coup d'etat, because no one ever thought it was going to be a war. They just said, we're going to take over. And Mussolini was very adamant. He said, well, um, what type of government are you going to have? Is it going to be a monarchy? Is it an absolute monarchy? Is it, which monarch is it? Is it going to be one of the Carlist pretenders? Is it going to be, um, is Alfonso coming back? Alfonso Thirteenth, who was then in, in Rome. And they said, well, we don't really know. We don't really know. And Mussolini said, well, that's okay. Just at least tell me there won't be any elections. It won't be democratic. They said, oh, no, no elections, no democracy. Mussolini said, fine, here's your money. <laughs> was Franco on the scene at this, at this stage? Well, um, Franco began to come to light in 1934. That was when he, he had been in Africa during the colonial wars that Spain had with its African holdings, mostly Ceuta and Melilla. He distinguished himself as a very fine general. We have to tell the truth. He was a very fine general, a brave man, a leader of men. He knew how to get men to follow him, to believe in him. And through his successes in the north of Africa, he became the youngest general in all of Europe. I believe it's the youngest general ever in all of Europe. He was um, in his early 40s when he became a general. And he was made the field marshal of the Spanish army in 1934 because he was of a very authoritarian bent of mind. Now, technically, the military should never have a ideas on politics, but Franco, and he wasn't politically active at that time, but he did have a, an authoritarian bent. And there was an uprising in 1934 
in Asturias, the miners rose up because they said that what the, was going on in the Black Biennium with the ingress of all these really right-wing parties was, was not um, serving the common good. And they rose up, and Franco was responsible for putting that, that down. It was a 12-day revolution. It's called um, the October Revolution. It took place in October of 1934. And he was very ruthless and very harsh and very effective. Then the backlash, I mean, so many people were tortured, put into prison. Even journalists who dared to report on this were killed. Uh, Luis Serval was one of those journalists. So the point is, that's when he came into high public profile, 1934, and he as the field marshal. And so then um, there began to be a lot of plots going on. But, but okay, the, the government stayed together despite that terrible um, incident, that revolution. The government stayed together. But then the black biennium phase of, of the Republican government uh, just petered out from from under its own weight of incompetency and and scandal because there's a gambling scandal where a Dutch businessman wanted to invest in in a casino and secret permits were given that wasn't allowed but secret permits were given and when it didn't come through the Dutchman said what's what's going on with with my casino permit and of course, it was he had given huge bribes. Well, it became a huge scandal, and so that discredited the government. The government at that time was under Leroux, who was a radical who got kept. He started out in life as an anti-cleric, clerical agitator, but he kept getting progressively more right wing, more right wing, and anyway, the whole government collapsed. Mm -hmm. So then there was a constitu constituent government. And by this time, public opinion was so polarized, they had elections and the Frente Popular won. That was a, a coalition of eight left-wing parties, from communist to socialist to um, leftist Republican, moderate Republican, conservative Republican, Catalan nationalist. It was, it was a big melange of parties, but they won. And that was in February 1936. In March, they were already planning the, the Spanish Civil War, and Franco was there, and, and a number of generals were there in Madrid. It was all being planned, and they're saying, okay, you know, go tell your men, uh, have your men go tell Mussolini that the time is drawing near, we need that money. Um, have, in '33, Hitler had come to power in Germany, so have your, I mean, they're already putting their feelers out to get support for, for the war. The Spanish Republican government realized that this plotting was going on. So what they did is they had the main generals, the most dangerous generals, redestined to places not in Madrid. So Franco was sent to the Canary Islands, get him out of the way. Godez, who is another one of the main generals, was sent to Mallorca, get him on some islands. And then Mola um, was another one of the main generals, and they sent him to Pamplona, which in my opinion they didn't send him far away enough. So, but they managed with telegrams and secret messages to organize the, the, the uprising. And that took place on the 17th of July with all of the international help in place. For, so was there help from the Soviets for the, for the left, uh, for the government? Yes, they were, that was the only country that would help the government. And that's what um, Churchill and Roosevelt didn't like. But when Churchill and Roosevelt needed Stalin, oh, they could befriend him. They could befriend Stalin for the continuation of their governments. Spain couldn't, <laughs> you know. So it's a double standard all the way. When they needed Stalin to, to give Hitler a two-front war, you know, welcome Stalin. I mean, there's even a photograph of the three of them, you know. Uh, so, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept that because there was non-intervention. So Roosevelt and, and especially the person leading it was, was, was England and Chamberlain and the, um, I believe it was the foreign minister, Eden, Anthony Eden. Um, they were all saying non-intervention. We do not want to spark another general conflagration. So they're saying we, we're not going to throw wood on the fire. And that's why we're not helping. Not that we don't believe in the Republican cause. 
Um, but really, I mean, and George Orwell obviously wrote this. He said, when will England wake up from its sleepwalking and realize that the wolf is at the door? And Churchill always also realized this, but Churchill at that time um, was not friendly at all to, to the Republican cause. And there are letters in which he writes to Franco, accepting Franco, saying, even though we believe in a democratic form of government, we can certainly turn a blind eye. So can you, can you summarise now um, what happened, the, the main events of the, of the war leading up to Franco taking over in thirty-nine. Okay. The war reached Ibiza in very early, I believe it was the 7th of August. Okay, well, what, when war broke out on the 17th, 18th of July in the rest of Spain... The, the highest military commander of Ibiza was um, Rafael García Ledesma. He declared for the, for the national side. The national side is, is the Franco side. He was of that. He was one of the generals that had been inculcated into the plot. And he said, uh, he said Ibiza declares for Franco. But he didn't take any steps to actually prepare the island for combat. I think he was later executed for, for not taking those steps, you know, by his own side. So what, what happened is that because it was July, there was another Mestre, Julio Mestre, was vacationing in Ibiza, as was his yearly custom. He came every single year, so it wasn't something that was really planned. And he was um, militarily the superior of García Ledesma. And he stepped up and he said, you've got to take some action here. So he became the the, the main person and he was just um, you see because what had happened is Angel Palermo one of the active anarchists who later went on to become an anthropologist of world renown went to the arsenal and stole all the dynamite in in the on the island just so that the the nationals couldn't be as effective mm. as they might have been and 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 do bad things and so that was, of course, a really bad thing. So the, so the dynamite was stolen, and, and a lot of people were arrested. A lot of people had to leave the island. You know, I'm, when I say people, I'm talking about the, the socialist and the left wing and the Republican. So can I, so, so the, before the revolution, before the war starts in Ibiza, there's just a part that the government here is sort of a regional government. It um, must be part of the, 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 the national government, the left wing government. Yes. Yeah. Then the, 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 the army, the general, declares for the other side. Yes. Does he have to then overturn the existing yes. rulers in the Yes, they, the do, they do. So they went in, there was a committee, uh, what was called the, well, the governing forum, that was basically more or less a socialist committee in Ibiza town. They actually march in. The mayor of Ibiza, I think, Vicente Colom, had just given a speech. He said, because Ibiza is so isolated... Well, you know, he said, war has broken out in Spain, but because Ibiza is so isolated, nothing will happen here. So ironically, he had the same idea as García Ledesma. And minutes after pronouncing those words, the, 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 the fascist uh, soldiers came in and arrested everybody present. <laughs> but at that moment, that's when Ángel Palermo escaped. He was only 18. And he nimbly climbed out of a window, and that's when he went to the arsenal and stole the dynamite. Um, so yes, there was um, a clampdown, and the go and the socialist government was dismantled, and they began to to try to set up a um, a, na a national government. When I say national, it's always referring to the Franco. Do, do, do you think that Ibif the Ibethan population naturally would? swing towards the national nationalist side Nat nat yes. naturally kind of conservative bunch. yes yes they're naturally conservative they're conservative because well basically they're apolitical but if politics comes into it at all they tended to be conservative whereas Formentera was extremely left-wing the two islands had completely different takes mm. on politics but the peasantry was a very pro-church. The church had, had always protected the peasantry. And they said, anything that's against the church is against what we believe. We don't know what they're saying, 
But if they're against the church, we don't like them. And then, of course, there there was a small Republican, uh, you know, socialist Republican sort of um, nucleus within society. But the main landowners and, you know, the Matutes family and, and, and the important families were conservative. Mm. So the, uh, could, it, could it be that the um, population in Ibiza hadn't suffered as much under the aristocracy? Yes. There wasn't as much starvation as, as you've told me about on the mainland and no. the, the t- terrible things. So maybe that's another reason why people were more apolitical. They didn't have that urge to, to change the world. Yes. Right. Okay, so how, how did events progress then in Ibiza okay. compared to the mainland? Okay, well then what happened is that from Barcelona, Captain Bayo decided to recapture the Balearic Islands. So he set off on an expedition that left from Barcelona. It was organized by the Generalitat in Barcelona, and he stopped by um, Valencia to pick up some more recruits, and then they came to Ibiza. They landed first in Formentera on the 7th of August, and they came with a lot of men and a lot more arms than what was here in Ibiza. There were very limited um, men in arms in Ibiza, and, and they took the island basically um, pretty pretty bloodlessly. They, then from Formentera, they went to Podesieo and marched into Ibiza town on August the 8th, and uh, Ibiza town capitulated. Most people tried to leave, uh, run away from the city and go. A lot of the landlords went to their fincas that they had in, in the countryside. But that's what happened. And that uh, turned out to be a pretty disappointing <laughs> six weeks. They, they, so the Republican rule, you know, obviously, well, they reinstated the anti-fascist committee as a form of government. Um, there wasn't a very harsh repression against the previous uh, national pro-Franco elements of society. Um, there might have been a few, a few things, but it wasn't a generalized uh, repression. Then what happened is that they, were, they weren't well enough defended and well enough entrenched, and I'm talking about um, both in Ibiza and in Mallorca. And of course, the I have to say at this point that Athania, who was the president of the Republic, has written extensively and, and very bitterly. He said, of course, the Balearic Islands were so strategic as a naval and air base for the rest of the peninsula, especially because Barcelona and Valencia had remained loyally Republican. You know, they needed the the triple base that the Balearics represented. And to just go off and do that expedition without asking for help, without, without planning it, with the national government, that we would have lended more support. And that was the... It, it failed. The expedition failed that the Generalitat did. Um... And when they realized that their position was untenable and they realized that the Italian bombers were coming, and Ibiza was bombed three times, um, many people were killed in Dalvila, um, what happened was one of the most unfortunate events of the whole war in Ibiza. Some of the most right-wing people, including, um, I think, Pedro Matutes Noguera, uh, they were imprisoned in, in the castle in Dalvila, which was the prison, and the and a very unruly bunch of um, anarchists on the last day, knowing that they would have to withdraw from Ibiza because they were being defeated on Mallorca, went to the castle and just shot everybody. So they shot about ninety five people. And this was the 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 what you call the creme de la creme of Ibizenko society, regardless of their political beliefs. Obviously, they were right-wing beliefs, but these were the peop- the glue that held Ibithenko society together, and so it was considered very scandalous and very bad. And of course, it was mm. scandalous and bad and wrong. But this um, this is what happened. Um, and then did, did those? Did, but, did, did the left-wing forces then withdraw? Yes, they withdrew, and then um, as a reconnaissance mission came from. A, uh, you know, a national reconnaissance mission came from 
from Mallorca and they said, yeah, Ibiza is in a state of lawlessness. There is no power there. And so about a week later, they just came and took the island. So that, that, that is how the Balearic Islands came to form part of, of Franco's territories. And was that it then, <clears throat> once the nationalists had taken Ibiza at that stage, did it stay? Yes, the, then it the stayed for, for the rest of the war yeah. and on through all the years of Frankism, mm -hmm. it stayed um, right wing. And were, were there, um, during that period, uh, when the Republicans took over, were there bad things happening to churches and the, the yes, clergy as well? Yes, many of the churches were burnt. Um, it was really pretty destructive. It was um, very disappointing because when well, they attribute this, because Captain Bayo was um, a high-minded and very um, correct type of um, fair general, but he, in Valencia, I remember I said they'd made a stop, they picked up um, some columns that had been formed by Uribarri, who was a very contradictory character, and they had released a lot of uh, common criminals and other ex-convicts and, and <laughs> scum of society into their ranks, and, and that was what made the, these troops, these Republican troops, so unruly. So it was very unfortunate. However, if we look at the, follow the years following up until um, Franco's victory, in 1939, so we're really looking at another sort of two and a half years, more Republican and left-wing thinkers were just shot, pulled out of their beds at midnight and taken on a walk to the graveyard and just shot in the middle of the night than were killed all on one night in the castle. So little by little, the repression against the hundreds, the numbers of, of left-wing sympathizers killed under Franco's rule during wartime is in the hundreds, and those who had to flee is in the thousands. So, you know, that doesn't get as much press. There's also this issue of, um, you hear stories about people, um, like pe pe people going to the authorities and saying that their neighbour, you know, had the, the wrong views, but it was really a matter of trying to set, settle, um, settle some disagreement. Yes. You know, and that this kind of thing was quite widespread. Yes. Do you know much about what happened? In... Okay, well, you just summed it up perfectly and succinctly. <laughs> so I'm not going to expand on that. The reason being, because, for example, in Artur Parron's excellent book, he talks about this. But for reasons of tact and discretion, mm. it's better not to go into this. But yes, people, if there were debts or something, you had kin snitching on kin... Um, you had neighbors snitching on neighbors, and it was usually not ideologically driven. It was driven on the basis of, he has lands, I'd like them. Because the state would simply, if you said, this guy, is, um, this guy is a mason, he's a secret mason. Well, the state would just go in and confiscate all his lands. And say, oh, well, thank you so much for alerting us to his heretical views. Here, take his lands. So that's the way it all worked. And at first, it was outside of the framework of the law. But very soon, very early on, I mean, I think before the end of 1936, a law was made to legalize this type of conduct. And that's why the bitter seeds of, of this type of behavior are so entrenched in Ibiza. But it, um, it's not our place to talk about the specifics of it. No, but um, you think that people are still aware of what went on then and I mean, maybe there are still these terrible conflicts where people are aware that their land was taken during the civil war their family's land yes. was effectively robbed from them yes by other members uh, by another branch of the family yeah. or by or by neighbors but I think it stayed within the families you know you have a lot of times where there's a property that that lies empty for years and years and years because the very own brothers and sisters, the, the, the heirs of this land, can't decide. They won't speak to each other. They can't decide what to do with it. I mean, as time will heal all, but uh, the war broke out in, in 1936, so it hasn't even been 100 years yet. Um, so forgetting is slow. Hmm. And then after, after the war finished and 
the dictatorship was in place, did that kind of thing come to an end? Did, was it then it reverted to a more stable kind of rule of law? Yeah, there's a stable rule of law, if not to say completely repressed. I mean, everybody um, was completely kowtowed into towing um, the Frankist line. And there were two main pillars of his ideology, church and patria. You had to love your country, and you had to love the church, and you had to be an observant and devout Catholic. As long as you could do those two things and never have any other ideas, you would be fine. But people, people who were sort of sitting on the fence or had no real idea or maybe had some ideas but left more liberal ideas but weren't, you know, really committed to it, became uh, terrified into submission because they would freeze your bank account. Many bank accounts were frozen. Or even if you said, okay, they can have our money, they can freeze our bank account, but we're going to get out, we're going to sell our property and just leave Spain, you couldn't even conduct uh, an economic commercial transaction. They wouldn't allow it. So unless you completely shut up, your wife and, and family would starve. And that's how they got a lot of people. So as not to make their, their own family, as heads of family, as householders, so as not to make their children suffer the effects, they would just say, okay, whatever Franco says does it. I mean, even, you know, your most uh, forward-thinking young activists that we had, like Juan Castillo Guache, Margalida Roche, they, after the war, taught their children. They said, never get involved in politics, never speak your mind, just shut up, live your life, be happy. It's not worth it. Was there a lot of opposition to Franco in the, in the post-war no. period? No. no, 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 no opposition. Yeah. If there was opposition, it was from outside of the country. Yeah. A lot came from Mexico. Mexico was a small nucleus of where some of the... In Mexico, South America um, were where the most active people. But once, once those, um, those Republican leaders died... The cause died as well. So you had people like Constancia de la Mora, um, when she she carried on until her dying days, but that she died in 1954. And then some of the people moved to to Soviet Union, you know. But it okay the it died in people, but the ideas went underground and were reborn, you know. When as Franco was nearing death. Obviously, Spain already knew it wanted to be like its neighbors. It wanted to be a democracy, wanted to have elections, a variety of political parties. It wanted to have the same civil rights. Funny enough, I came to Spain in the fall of 1980, and a month later, divorce was legalized for the first time since during the Second Republic. So, and I remember that, and it was shocking. And they were interviewing everybody well, what do you believe? Now that people can get divorced, will society dissolve? You know, <laughs> it was a big deal. But um, people, the Spanish people knew what they wanted. They had learned their lesson. Mm. And um, for, so those years of dec uh, the decades of Franco's rule in Ibiza, fairly calm, fairly peaceful? Uh, fairly, fairly miserable. <laughs> uh, people had hunger, they had starvation. I mean, an island like Ibiza de depends very, very heavily on, uh, obviously, contact with Mallorca and the mainland. Well, you see, right after the... Okay, the, the 10 years between 36 and 46, the Second World War having finished in 45, so those 10 years are called the years of hunger because everything that Spain had was being given by Franco to Germany right. because Germany also was, you know being heavily bombed, and they, didn't, they couldn't grow their own foodstuffs. So, so a lot of food was being taken to Germany, as happened in World War I as well. Um, so things like coffee, sugar, rice, gasoline, all these things that Ibiza had no way of, of making on its own, uh, they couldn't get. And then the things that it could, could make... You know, all of the all of the farmers were just trying to grow what they could possibly grow on the not especially fertile land in Ibiza, 
And there just wasn't enough to go around. Well, it's been really fascinating talking to you, Emily, about that uh, lead up to the Civil War and, and the aftermath as well. I suppose that the, the next big thing that happens to Ibiza is tourism. Yes, most definitely. And tourism began in, well, tourism, the idea of tourism had actually begun in about 1926 in a serious way. I'm not saying there had never been a tourist before that year, but under Primo de, de Rivera, who was the first sort of proto-fascist dictator, he was also very forward-looking economically. And he said, you know, if we can get foreigners to come to Spain and see all the wonders of Spain, um, you know, we can get a lot of that foreign revenue in, in Spain. So every major city, it was a, it was a national program where every major city in all of Spain was going to get a grand hotel built, a nice, comfortable, modern grand hotel, and that was going to be subsidized by the government in full. And as that hotel began to make back the money, little by little, the government, the national government would be paid back. And when it was finally paid back, the deed to the hotel would go to the town hall of that city, the city hall. And so that was a very good and very fair plan. That was just one of Primo de, de Rivera's fantastic ideas. Mm. Um, and so, of course, Ibiza didn't have a grand hotel. So they thought, well, we're going to get this wonderful grand hotel. But um, Mallorca stepped in and said, no way. We're getting the grand hotel, <laughs> and Mallorca is getting two, and Ibiza is getting nothing. Right. Yeah, and that's how the, the Montesol came into, into play. I think it was originally called the Grand Hotel. That was Ibiza's first Grand Hotel. That was Ibiza's first Grand Hotel. Yeah. And funny enough, the architect of it, um, Juan Campo Ripoy, was a big socialist leader whom Franco executed in 1942 after the war. What, what year is that hotel built, roughly, do you know? 1933. Oh, it looks older to yeah. me. Well, um, Campo Ripoy, who had been in, in Cuba and picked up a lot of um, his ideology in Cuba, um, then came back with not only socialist ideas, but, but the whole colonial architectural style, right. which he, mm. he you, used in many buildings in Ibiza town, most notably the Montesol, um, and taught to his uh, apprentices and disciples and workers. And he also always told his workers, I'm your boss, but you have to go down to the union office, you have to sign up for the union, you have to know your rights, and you have to demand your rights. He said, I'm going to treat you fairly, but you have to be involved, and you have to know what's go what you have coming to you, um, and what you need to, to give back in order to get those benefits. He, he, did, he was a much-loved figure, very low-key, very calm, um, but because he was known so widely for these views, um, he, he was, they got him, <laughs> and he was put into jail, and, and Franco did execute him. And funny enough, uh, the Montesol, or the Grand Hotel, as it was then called, became the military headquarters for Franco. Oh, right. Yes, yes, it was requisitioned by Franco, and it was the, the military headquarters from '36 until 46, those 10 years, af after finally um, the Second World War was over and all military activity <laughs> in Europe and Ibiza had come to a standstill. They had fought themselves <laughs> into quietude. Uh, then the hotel went back to being a hotel. And just one more question. Any plans to uh, publish another history book? Because your, your book finishes with the Catalan conquest about to happen yes could you could you take it further do you think well yes I could um I have a lot of um things written about that period but I think right now I'm more interested in this um second republic and civil war period so I think if I go if I do publish anything it would be it would be about 1902 to 1939 that that time slot well Look forward to uh, reading your next text, whatever shape or form it might take. Thank you. Thanks very much, Emily. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
This haunting song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Centre in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Vas a las tres, aparece el gallo, fe. No tengas pocket, bucket, y porque no aprovechas.